Howdy folks, this is Scott Parker and you're listening to episode 43 of the ZappaCast for January of 2020. It's a new year and it's our ninth year and we're going to start it off in style with us today from the almighty rock and metal combat podcast. Ladies and gentlemen, Wadzilla himself, Ian Wadley. Hey, glad to be here, man. Thanks hey, for having man. me, Scott. It's always a pleasure, my brother. And um, also on the phone with us, um, well, let me tell you who's not on the phone with us is young master Scott Fisher, who is up in Chicago sick today. He was supposed to be on the uh, recording, but he's not there. So feel better, Mr. Fisher. Uh, but our very special guest today is a longtime member of the ZappaCast team, and you know him and you love him as the professor himself, and now he is the author of a new book, which all of you need to have. Run right out and buy it right now because it's absolutely necessary. The book is called Zappa's Gear, and the professor is Mick Eakers. Hi, Mick. Hi, Scott. Um, your, your check's in the post for that. Thanks. <laughs> <laughs> That's better, is it? <laughs> so, I was going to say from the University of Bognor Regis. I almost forgot that part. I'm actually at the University of Essex. You know that, don't you? No, actually, I didn't know that. I was going to ask yeah. you where you were in relation to Bognor Regis. Um, well, Bognor Regis is on the south coast, so it's about sort of 50 miles away. But, but I, now that I've retired from my day job, I am actually um, a full-time student at Essex University. Really? In a place called Colchester, yeah. How's that going? What are you studying? It's history. Yeah. And and it's going cool. And I showed the book to um, a couple of my lecturers, and they say, "Well, look, this is like modern history of technology, and I should give a seminar on it at some point on the campus, which would be quite cool." Well, you'd be very good f- at that. So yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, you you they call you the professor for a reason. And so, <laughs> well, <laughs> <laughs> but that book, Zappa's Gear, has been a long time. Do you have it yet, Ian? No, I do not. No, oh. but I will be getting it. We will have to get you one because it's, um, it's the unique guitars, amplifiers, effects units, keyboards, and studio equipment of Frank Zappa. And um, it is a book that I have barely put down since I got my copy. And... <laughs> <laughs> Have you been happy with the reaction to it? Yes, indeed. Yeah, I, I mean, it's it's early, very early days in terms of getting reviews and so on. But mm. yeah, everyone I know who's seen it is very pleased, and you know, yeah, very very pleased so far. I'm, I'm delighted with you know the way the Zappa family put it together in the end and backbeat books. It was far better than I was ever imagined. I'd be able to do sort of you know back when we were just going to sort of effectively me and Gail were just going to self publish. So. That's right. That's right. It was going to be available through the website, right? Yeah, that was the plan. Yeah. So to see it actually out in real shops, proper book, very, very satisfying. Yeah. I have it at my uh, local bookstore here. Oh, really? uh, Yeah. Yeah. Yep. It's here. And I'm hoping you release a version that's all pictures so people here in the South can enjoy it as well. (laughs) (laughs) The good news is it is there's a whole lot of pictures in it. And uh, yeah. You know, basically, well, we'll we'll go through the story, but Mick took the vast majority of those pictures, right, Mick? You took most of those yeah, pictures. Yeah, that's right, yeah, yeah. Yeah, with an eye toward the important stuff. So it was, you know, really 
preserving the important stuff. So it's a great book. I mean, I'm really, I'm proud to have played even a small part in it and uh, in its creation. And it's just uh, very proud of you. You did well, sir. <laughs> Thank you so much, Scott. <laughs> so let's see. Let's go through this because I think it's a, it's a very interesting story. So what made you decide to um, write a book about Frank's, was it guitars initially or was it as broad scope as? So, yeah, the, the original idea was was guitars. Um, and I've been trying to think back. Uh, there's, there's a little story if I can tell you the exact moment when the idea was born. But I've been sort of trying to think what was going on in my head that led to that. And I think I just managed, maybe sort of a month or so before I'd got hold of a vinyl copy of Shut Up and Play Your Guitar, you know, the lovely box set of all three albums. And so I think I'd been sort of playing that a lot and reading it. And, of course, all the sleeve notes have that tantalizing little thing saying, you know, this was played on the Hendrix Strat or whatever. Mm -hmm. So I, I think it was it was in my head about his guitars. And um, so the exact moment, which is still really vivid to me, it was summer 2010. Um, I was out in Leoncee, our little town, uh, with my son, Chris, who's a big guitar freak and a sound engineer and sure. big tech head and so on. So we were, we were just sort of hanging out and we passed by a little local bookshop. And in the window was a copy of a book about... Um, David Gilmore's Black Strat. Yes. A yes. whole whole luxury coffee table book about one guitar. Mm -hmm. And we sort of looked at that and thought, what? And and Chris said, Wow, that's exciting. What happened? You know, like May sixty seven, put a new strap on it and so on. And <laughs> and I saw you know, we sort of laughed a bit and I said, Yeah, why doesn't somebody make a book about someone who had interesting guitars like Frank Zappa? Yeah. And Chris just turned around straight back at me and said, well, why don't you? And that was the light bulb moment. I couldn't answer. And then I said, yeah, why don't I? So that was the, that was where the idea came from. And it, originally it was guitars. So that was, that was in summer 2010. I, I mean, I'd never actually written a book, certainly never sold one. Um, and so I thought, well, okay, let's see about this. So I started just doing a bit of research soon became obvious that there was a lot more than just the guitars. There was, you know, there was his effects rack, the pedals, all the gear that's in the book. So I started sort of looking at that mm. and then found out that, um, that November there was going to be a little mini Zappa festival at the roundhouse in London. That's right. And Dweezil Dweez was coming over. Gail was coming over. So I just thought, hmm, well, maybe if I just turn up there, I might be able to have a word with Gail and um, see if she'd go for it. So, and, you know, I thought, well, how, how difficult would that be? So sure enough, rocked up at the concert. The, it was a whole weekend thing. Um, and just happened to catch Gail standing by the merch stand. So I just went up to her and said, um, Gail, have you, you got a minute? And she said, sure. Wow. And I said, um, Gail, I've got an idea. Uh -huh. I think I'd like to write a book about Frank's guitars. 
and she sort of looked straight back at me, gave me her dazzling smile and said, what a great idea. And I, I sort of stepped back and she said, fantastic. Here's my email address. When I get home, send me an outline, send me a list of the chapters and a couple of samples and we'll see if it's a goer. And I thought, and that was it. That was, that was how I sold the book. Took wow. about two minutes. <laughs> well, Lord. That was, the, that was the easy bit. Yeah. Well, that's how that happened. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> are are you a guitar player, Wads? Uh, um, I I I would I wouldn't call it that. I have one. <laughs> uh, I, I have a seventy four SG. You know that's my favorite guitar of all time you know, because of Frank, because of Tony Iommi, because of Angus Young. Sure. I just think it. I've always thought it's like the sexiest looking guitar. You know, and, and a lot of people swear by you know their Fenders or their you know. Uh, Les you know, uh, they're Les Pauls and stuff, but mm-hmm. I've always been an SG man and, uh, and Frank has a lot to do with that. Yeah. But I, I'm a really shitty rhythm guitar player. I'm a rhythm <laughs> guitar player with no rhythm. <laughs> Mick, you, yeah. are you, you know, a practicing guitar player yourself? Uh, you must be, but I don't think I've um, ever asked you that. No, I, I'm not actually, I, I, I played bass, um, and in my youth, I was in, I was in odd bands and so on. So I played bass guitar and so on. Yeah. Um, and what what the sort of the technical background as well? I, for a while, um, I was in a sort of a little small music company oh. that was selling public public address systems, early synthesizers, and so on. And so I was in the sort of music tech side. We actually went over and exhibited at the Summer NAM, so on. And this was all in the 70s, at about the time when all this new technology was was happening. I think the show I was at, I think the Ebo was being launched. All sorts of new gadgets were coming out. Um, yeah, yeah. So we, we had an early polyphonic synthesizer. Moog was, was going. So all that explosion of analog music technology was really sort of in its heyday when i was sort of in the business it all it all went oh yeah all went down down the pan very quickly and i got a proper job in computers because i had a family and stuff and that's the way it goes so 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 i've always sort of dabbled and always played a bit of bass but never i've never been a real guitarist yeah i i I mean i i dabble Oh, you don't bother dabble, man. You've you, you've been running your band tabletshire for a good few years now, haven't you? You yes. should be getting a bit. You should know the numbers a bit by now, surely. I do. Seven <laughs> years now. Good lord. <laughs> but the only I've, Frank tune we I've do heard is... your music. Yeah, and I, yeah. And I tell you what, when it comes to playing guitar, you are a hell of a podcaster. Let me tell you. <laughs> <laughs> You're absolutely right. <laughs> Yeah, you so, hold it the other way round, Scott, as well. You need to know that. Yeah. <laughs> That's where you're going wrong. <laughs> as a podcaster, I'm a hell of a guitar player. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> go from here because i know you knew andrew andrew greenaway ladies and gentlemen um mm-hmm. 
And how did you hook up with Andrew? Did you know Andrew? No, I didn't. No, I, I had no idea at all. So, 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 following on from that, so that Christmas, I sort of sent Gail. I, I frantically, you know, put together a couple of chapters and the stuff and sent it back to her. And I got the email back from her official email saying, "Yes, you have my approval." Off you go. Um, and so I started asking around for information uh, anywhere that I could find stuff, anywhere that anyone who had pictures from the day and so on, because that, that was the real challenge was finding photographs of Frank's equipment sure. from the early days, because nobody took hardly any photographs anyway, let alone of what he was playing. Um, and I think I found some photographs on the web um, from D. Pinder, uh, ah, yes. mad, mad Zappa, absolute fan. Mm -hmm. And I spoke to him about these pictures. He had some stuff. I think, yes, right. He had some, he had some pictures of Frank's metal plectrums that he used on the 1988 tour. Oh, and wow. that's how we started talking about that, <laughs> which are in the book, which are in the book yeah, sure. with, with a micrometer around it. So you can get the exact shape and size and make your own if you want. But um, awesome. <laughs> so I spoke to him and told him I was bringing this book out and we started chatting and so on. And he passed the information on to Andrew because mm -hmm. Andrew had been, had got his Zapper website, which again, I'd sort of, I started having a look to see if there's information on there. There were some interviews and so on. And so Andrew got in touch with me and then we found out that he lived about sort of 10 miles away. Ah, yes. <laughs> what were the chances of that yeah. in Stanford Lee Hope in Essex? So, so we met for beers and we've, you know, been friends ever since really. We hit it right off. And, and then I can't remember a few months after that, probably in summer 2011, you got in touch with me and said, do you want to do something on this Zappa podcast thing that I'm just starting up? Yeah. And I think I came in about episode four or five or something. Can't remember. It was a long time ago. But anyway, that's how that's how I sort of first met um, the idiot bastard son, which was nice. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so at this point, when you got in touch, or I got in touch with you, yeah. Um, what was? Where were you in the writing of the book? Had you started at that yes. point? Yes. So, yeah. So I, I'd started it, um, and if you remember, we did a couple of sort of short little mini pieces in in the middle of the podcast where I talk sure. about either the Hendrix strat or whatever, as I was basically writing those chapters. Once mm -hmm. I've got one ready, I go, Oh, I can do one about this now. And so on. So, so in 2011, as I say, I was sort of doing a lot of researching, finding what I could on the web, asking people for photographs and, and doing a lot of writing. Um, and eventually I got a sort of very rough draft together which you got a copy of Scott, if you I remember. Knew. And, you know, by then it was sort of Gail, bless her, wonderful lady. I, I really miss Gail tremendously, but she had a very, a very special sense of time that yeah. was unlike anybody else's. And sometimes you get a response for an email in 30 minutes. Sometimes it might be well, six months. Yes. A year, you know, there was there was times when I thought, oh my god, what have I said? What have I offended her? Why is she answering me? But well, I can't pressurize her. It's Gail, you know, and and so it's a very sort of 
you know, slow start sort of thing. And I was not getting a lot of traction in arranging to go out there to photograph the equipment at the his studio because I knew I had to do that mm-hmm. or else the book, book would just be just a bunch of words. And then you got a copy of whatever state the draft was in. And I remember you managed to give a copy of that to Dweezil. I had been speaking to Dweezil a bit about it, but yeah. you actually gave him a copy of that. And that sparked his interest, you know. And so um, I think it was in 2011, autumn 2011, um, he came over with um, Zappa Play Zappa. Yeah. And I managed to have a quick chat with him after the show, just a couple of minutes, and sort of said, so, um, you know, what about, I really need to come over and do these things. How is next January looking? And he went, yeah, yeah, that should be good. I'm not on tour. Nobody's doing anything. Yeah, let's do that. So we sort of penciled in a day, and I booked flights and everything. And, hey, cool, I'm going over to, to see Dweezil and the guitars. So... So that was that. So as I say, that's your your key part in this, Scott. I think as well. But so that's how that went, panned out. And um, the story of what happened when I went to LA is (laughs) so that's where it got a bit interesting. Yeah, that would be my next question (laughs) because I we talked all the way through that trip. So you know, but the the stories you could tell are uh, are amazing because. First of all, the house at this point is still the house on Woodrow Wilson Drive, right? Absolutely. So still owned the by the Zappa, Zappa family. Yep. Yeah. And, in fact, that was the first surprise because when I arranged to go and meet Dewey's, well, I'd, then I found out he wasn't living at the house anymore. And I thought, oh, okay, mm-hmm. good, good for him. So we went out there, and all I'd got permanently, all I'd got arranged, um, we, had, we had a meeting to see Thomas Nordegg, and he was wonderful. So I, I went there with Chris again to sort of be my tech consultant because he really knew, knows about guitars and just to help me with the camera gear and stuff like that. Sure. So we went round to see Thomas and that was that was absolutely marvellous. He's got he's just got a house full of equipment. You wouldn't believe it, but yeah. <laughs> I'll talk to you about that another time. Yeah. Um, and we we went and saw Dweezil. Mm. Um, so I, I guess if do you want to keep this chronological, I should probably tell you what it what happened when we went went and saw dweezel actually because that was sure that was very cool so we went to dweezel's house which is it's, it's a very nice medium-sized bungalow you know a nice suburb of la that you know not really big rock star house which is sort of that was interesting but you know nice enough house and he's got a small outhouse with a you know a little little studio in it so we went in there and dweezel was lovely and charming and friendly and he talked for about an hour and a half about all this incredible detail he knew about all the guitars and everything. It was just, it was amazing, you know, he yeah. really, really helpful. And so we just about sort of wrapping up. And then he said, um, hey, would you like to see the Hendrix Strat? <laughs> and, and me and Chris went, uh, yeah. <laughs> assuming it would be sort of locked up in a vault somewhere and he said oh it's yeah well I'm, I'm doing some work on it at the moment i've got the body back at back in the house i'll just go and get it for you wow and he walked back into his house and came out in his garden and there he had the body and he was just holding it there and i took some pictures they're in the book and and it was funny and so so me and chris were standing there looking at this thing and trying to remember to take photographs at the same time 
and it was like about you know 15 inches away or whatever and I think we must have both sensed and seen our hands moving and the sort of look passed between us like we could touch it couldn't we yeah <laughs> and, and and the look went back yeah but that wouldn't be cool would it no so we did <laughs> idiots so we oh. didn't we, we were professional we took photographs or whatever oh it's a hendrix body how interesting yeah i've seen him all the time so we yeah. didn't touch it but we could have done you know sure. <laughs> so, <laughs> and i wish i had but hey um so so that was great so we had a lovely time at tweezers fabulous and then we said okay so photo session around um around the umrk uh-huh. uh what are we going to do about that? Dweezil started looking a little bit uncomfortable and said, um, I, I, so I'm not, I'm not going to, I'm not going to dwell on this because this was in the past, I think. And basically Dweezil just said, do I have to be there when you look at the guitars? And I sort of said, well, no, it would be nice. Yeah. And he said, um, okay, well, here's, here's my mum's phone number. Um, and I'll tell her you're here and, and you know, you can give her a call and sort it out. So I hadn't realized um, at that time there was a big family difference of opinion happening. Yeah. And, and when I say a difference of opinion, you know, this was like I'd arranged with Harry to go and visit Buckingham Palace last year. You know, <laughs> it was almost exactly that situation. Uh, do I have to be there? Here's my mum's number. Perhaps she'll speak to you. I was, you know, it was that sort of. <laughs> yeah. I, I had no idea of that at all. You know, so that was a bit of a surprise. And, um, and called Gail up, and she said, what do you mean by going behind my back and talking to Dweezil? Oh, yeah. <laughs> that was as soon as I, I picked the phone, and I thought, oh, dear. Um, and I was like, I have no, no intention, Gail, you know. I, I just, you know, you were busy, and so I spoke to him, and I assumed he would have told you, and I, you know. So we had... A very difficult couple of days, a lot of long phone calls with Gail. <laughs> and it was like it was like she was testing my resolve and commitment. You know, she started out just saying, first of all, she said, well, look, it's just not going to happen. There's, you know, you can't just turn up just like that unannounced mm-hmm. and come in the house. You know, and, and I was going, well, I didn't know I was unannounced. I thought it was all organized. You know, so she said, well, well, and we had a long time and she could. And then she sort of said, um, oh, yeah, and I heard you, I said, I saw you wrote something about some um, air sculptures, about Frank Sutar solos. I went, oh, yeah. And she said, do you, know, do you know where that came from? Do you know who said it first? And I went, uh, no, but um, I can probably find out. And she went, okay, well, I'll speak to you tomorrow. Let me know. So she put the fact down. And that's when I, I frantically emailed you and um, Andrew saying, well, help, help. You know, Gail's, Gail's testing me, man. What's Frank, going on? Frank never actually said that. No, he didn't. He did not. Um, he, he, he said, um, uh, I've got the word somewhere, but he said somewhere like a, a guitar solo is a bit like uh, making a, a, sculpt, a musical sculpture or something like that. He never actually said it an air sculpture. Uh-huh. Um, but anyway, thanks to some research and you guys, we found the first use of the word air sculpture was in a, a French guitar magazine in, I don't know when it was, 1960 something. So, yeah. <laughs> so Gail spoke to me next day and I gave her that answer. And then she told me a whole story about how she'd invented the term. Come up with it. Yeah. 
And um, so I sort of passed that test. And then she sort of said, well, we might be able to do something. But like I said, you can't just turn up here. You know, I can't just let you handle my husband's guitars, you know. Mm-hmm. And so I said, um, what if if Thomas was available? Would that be all right? And she sort of said, maybe. See mm-hmm. what you can sort out. Speak to me tomorrow. So <laughs> calling Thomas. <laughs> so I called Thomas up, and because Thomas, have you ever met him? He's just the most wonderful, gentlemanly, helpful, tremendous person on the planet. He really he, is. He absolutely is. Is um, he, yeah. Words can't describe. It. Anyway, so I called him up, and he just sort of went, "Well, let's see. Um, I'm doing gigs with Steve all weekend, and we're doing the Nam show on Monday. But yes, I can do Tuesday for you. Oh, fantastic! Yeah. So, so phone girl back and said, "Well, we can possibly do, you know, Tuesday, or what? No, Monday or Tuesday. I forget the exact thing of the conversation." And Gail said, well, okay, maybe we can do the Tuesday, but aren't you flying back that day, triumphantly? <laughs> as, if, as, if, as if, you know, the final test was I'd have to cancel the flight and rebook it. Then I said, no, we're flying back the Wednesday. So she went, okay, and we got a date. And so finally, with one day to go, we got the, um, <laughs> the visit to the, uh, <laughs> the UMRK. I mean, I had... It hadn't been idle. Obviously, we'd seen Dweezil, and I'd managed. I got some appointments with um, uh, Cuneo at Stars Guitar. It's um, uh, performance guitar. Yes, performance. Cuneo performance guitar. So, I'd, I'd, and a few other people, um, John Carruthers, we went and saw. So, I managed to actually get to speak to some people who worked and built Frank's guitars and so on, and uh, met the guy at some um, Guitar World. Yes, Guitar World. Yeah, Guitar World. And we have them here and, too. <laughs> yeah, and got and got to meet the guy who'd actually been there when they took Frank's cast, which was quite oh, cool. Wow! And he was too ill to come down and do it, so they had to do it at the house, right? They 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 had to take a slab of wet concrete and stuff up there, and he did it at the house. Wow! Um, so so I'd been very busy, but the the real purpose of the visit happened on the last day. So there you go. You know, I, I was wondering, you know, when you have these difficulties, does that kind of make you rethink like, man, now I, I totally got to change what I'm doing with this book or, you know, is this, you know, going to affect my book? I mean, what, what what's going through your head? Like if you can't get into, you know, the utility muffin, you know, do you have like plan B? And Yeah, I, I just thought if, if I don't can't get into utility muffin, I think I'm just going to have to write a book about the Hendrix Strat because I'm just going to have nothing, you know. Yeah, <laughs> so I was, yeah, I was really very worried about it, to say the least. But I mean, I, I, I sort of had, I say I was worried, but also I sort of, when I first met Gail and email conversations and a couple of phone conversations we had a couple of years before, we'd built up quite a good rapport and I got on very well with Gail. We had a couple of very long phone conversations. Sure. So I thought, ah, 
you know, hope, hopefully it'll be all right. But I, I really had no idea, you know, so it was a bit tense. <laughs> yeah. And so that, so you, would you have rebooked the flight if you had to? Yes. Yeah, I figured. <laughs> yeah. Because you know, I, mean, I know we were uh, talking all the way through to you. were like, you were very worried. I know. I remember that. <laughs> yeah. No, I mean, you know, having spent all that money and time coming over here, you know, a, a couple of extra days hotel bills and a cancellation for the art, that was really negligible. So I would have done it. Yeah. But yeah. Uh, <laughs> now, is this something where are you coming out of? pocket for all these or do you you know do you have a a publisher or anything that's helping you with you know no, traveling just, doing all this it's just all on my own ticket oh wow man that, that's some dedication that, that's incredible yeah yeah that's a and, and i could see where that could add to the anxiety you know where the whole point is is to get to the muffin and, yeah. Uh, wow. <laughs> yeah but uh yeah it just shows your dedication though you know to, to go to all this length to do that and i think that's fantastic and i'm sure that uh, translates into the book I, I guess so, but it all works out all right, and we arrived at the the house on that Tuesday. All right, so we th this opens up a whole like this is um, a Zappa fan's dream come true. The time you spent at the house for various reasons, so and you know, we definitely have to hear those stories. <laughs> okay, yeah, it, <laughs> it absolutely was a dream come. So we we turned up outside. And Thomas was there already waiting for us, of course, because he is, as, sure. as Steve, I said, he's as reliable as the sun, that man. <laughs> so, <laughs> so we went up and we we knocked on the door. It, incidentally, something that I didn't find out till later, um, that this was the first time that Thomas had been back to the house for about three or four years. So it was nice that actually... I think I brought them back together. But anyway, we... Uh, That's great. We, so we knocked on the door, and um, it was Kurt who answered the door. He was, he was the, the schoolmaster at the time. Kurt Morgan, yeah. Kurt Morgan, yeah. And so he said, hey, all right, come in. Um, we've just got to go upstairs and wait a minute. <laughs> okay, so he, he took us upstairs um, through the little, there's a little side door uh, up, up some stairs, past the entrance to the studio, into a tiny little kitchen, and we had some coffee. And in the background, I could hear Gail's voice talking very animatedly on the phone to someone mm. in some other room in the building. And this has went on for about 45 minutes. And Kurt was just sort of going, hey, you know, we, we just got to wait. <laughs> so, <okay. laughs> so we're having our coffee and waiting. <laughs> And and then it was just like a sort of an explosion of gale. She just sort of runs down the stairs, bursts into the room, huge smile, said, hey, I'm so sorry that I've kept you waiting so long, but I've been busy on the phone talking to Ruth Underwood, and I've oh convinced God. her to come along this afternoon for an interview for you. <laughs> Don't say I never do anything for you and punch me on the arm. And I thought, I love you, Gail. Basically. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's brilliant. Now, so, is, that, is that something you plan to do uh, no. to, to reach out to uh, musicians who played with Frank to ask questions or get any information? I, I no, I, I had. Um, I sort of made contact with um, some of the more recent ones. Uh, I've spoken to Arthur Barrow, Tommy Mars, uh, and a few others. Uh, uh, George Duke and so on. Actually, they. 
those interviews were later on actually after this visit but i had sort of been making contact but i i had no idea how to get in touch with ruth for example she was just off the off the off the grid you know yeah. so and that was just like oh, really and uh, <laughs> <laughs> of all um, the people when you told me that my jaw dropped you know <laughs> yeah so i thought well this is a good sign and then she sort of bustled us down into the studio Sure. And um, there we were in the UMRK. And she just said, okay, right. Uh, the guys have got been getting the guitars out for you. And there was Joe and Kurt have been working away. I found out that they'd actually been preparing the stuff for about three days beforehand. Oh, wow. Even though she was trying to pretend that maybe we wouldn't be able to come, you know. <laughs> <laughs> so anyway, <laughs> women, am I right? Yeah. Uh, <laughs> uh, Gail was—I uh, mean, Gay was a very special person, but but she she really came up trumps, you know. She she'd also arranged for Toddy Vega to come round and wow. talk to me about Clavier as well. Though I think Todd Todd came round. He said I really came because I heard that uh, Ruth was going to be here, but you know. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> So, I've so been she there took too. us. In, yeah, <laughs> she she took us into the um, into the studio and said, "Okay, you can take photographs of any of the equipment, any of the instruments, anything except sort of personal stuff on the wall, whatever. Mm -hmm. um, fire at will." And off she left us. So we, wow. we set up the camera and some sort of lighting. Found found a spot. Um, you know, put a backdrop up and so forth. And Chris went over with uh, where Thomas was, and there was a whole pile of guitar cases. And so they started opening these guitar cases, and Chris was bringing them over. <laughs> and like for about an hour, it was like, um, oh, you're going to like this one. And out came the performance strat, for example. Wow. And, and then, oh, you're going to like this one even more. And, um, you know, the, the SG came up oh. with a mirror on it. And... You know, and then the um, oh, it was it was just never ending. You know, we 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 had on that day we had the oh the Switchmaster yeah came along came out and, and just on and on. You know, through I say on, I mean Frank didn't have a massive collection. He had about well, maybe fifteen or so guitars there, I think. But so this was all happening, and it was just like oh, you know, fucking hell, this is part of me. Effing hell, I would yeah. have said. Oh, no, you can say that. You can say that. <laughs> <laughs> but I was just like, you know, I mean, that was what was going through my head. You know, this is really happening. Is is it a dream? You know, and um, after about the, sec the second or third guitar, the there was a point where I really did think it was a dream because suddenly Diva came in um, <laughs> looking incredibly charming and lovely. He went, hey, hello, I'm Diva. And I said, yeah, I know we met at the roundhouse, but. Of course, you won't remember me. She said, of yeah. course I remember you, and gave me a huge smile and said, anyway, and I've ordered pizzas for you for lunch. Wow. And at that point, I thought, oh, this really is just a dream, isn't it? You know, <laughs> waiting for the sort of someone to wake me up and say, we've got to get the train home. It's all falling. But anyway, yeah. you know, <laughs> so, yeah. Um, Did you learn so from your mistake with the Hendrix guitar? Did you touch any of these? <laughs> um. I, I suppose I did. I mean, I wasn't, but not, not in any sort of, I mean, just, we, you know, setting them up on the stand and, yeah. you know, dusting the knobs to get them, this sort of stuff. So, wow. you know, and, and basically there was a fairly careful routine and Thomas would, 
open get them off the rack and open them up and check them and hand them to chris and chris who's used to handling guitars and very carefully bring it over you know holding it with both hands very tightly and we'd put it on the stand and we were very careful with these things obviously um and then in the afternoon um after we'd had our pizzas it wasn't a dream um we then came to the other stuff and there was like about seven incredible old marshall amplifiers with sort of words on them on bits of tape like you know frank left and frank right and you know killer sound on one of them i think and various yes. <laughs> his collection of marshall and and chris was just like beside himself because he's a huge marshall freak and then it, it turns out that ruth was arriving so i said well look you can work the camera you know about amps so you and thomas you do the amps i'm going up to interview you know to interview ruth um <laughs> where should we go and um bruce said well why don't you go up into the control room you know <laughs> so yeah why not so, why not so i found myself sitting on the comfy sofa in the umrk control room oh. with ruth underwood next to me oh and <laughs> being incredibly charming and lovely and warm and she kept touching my knee as she's just a very tactile friendly woman and i thought Ruth, I can't tell you the sort of thoughts I had about you when I was a young man. But it's very nice. <laughs> I think every Zappa fan can relate. Every male Zappa fan certainly could relate to that. <laughs> and, and then, so we, we started, we just started talking for about 10 minutes and then Ruth came in and, and that was quite interesting because mm. um, it was just so obvious that she was still the boss. And so the girl comes in and Ruth goes, oh, um, yeah, we're, we're just talking about stuff. Is, is it okay that we do it without you here? And goes, oh, yeah, yeah, don't worry. It's all, you know, this is all mixed doing a great book about guitars. And I just thought I'd, you know, come in and have a chat because I haven't seen you for ages as well. So then Gail sat down. So I had Gail on one side, Ruth on the other. And then Gail hijacked the interview for about half an hour. <laughs> and I just, I just sat back and rolled with it because it was just the most amazing, lovely conversation that I can never use anything of i've got it recorded you, but they were talking about it right yeah yeah oh. but <laughs> it was just they were just talking like you know two old ladies who've been friends in the old days and they were talking about you know which of which of frank's sound mixers were hot and all this sort of stuff it was <laughs> fantastic i just that's great it was delightful um and then <laughs> as i say then Gail left us and, and you know ruth was actually um extremely helpful she only really knew about her own equipment and so on but she was she was great she gave us lots of information um and uh todd <laughs> todd came along toddy vega so then we had an interview with todd as well and todd wow. just knows everything about frank's synthesizers and he's a lovely guy and he was getting very excited about the synthesizers and we were chatting away and then he suddenly saw tucked away in the corner on a shelf the um octopad Oh yeah, you know the octopad, the Roland thing with eight, yep, sort of little square pads that you you drum on, whatever. Yeah, it, and uh, he just jumps samples it. and stuff. Yeah, yeah, it's it's like a little, like about a, a book size thing with eight little rubber pads, and you can, it's a portable drum pad, but you can use it for all sorts of stuff. And it's a sample went, controller, I think, more or less. Yeah, but, but well, it's but you, you hit it with a drumstick, you know. You hit it with a drumstick, and I think originally they thought you'd use it as a drum pad. But um, anyway, yeah. Todd just went, oh, wow, it's the Octopad. Man, we use this all the time. And he grabbed it out and he got so excited. And and he was telling me how, because Frank could drum, 
So he would, they'd hook this thing up to the synclavier and Frank would put in the rhythm patterns on the, on the octopad, like playing a snare drum. Wow. And then they'd, then they'd sample mandolin or whatever <laughs> using the <laughs> rhythms that Frank had put in on the octopad. So he used that for an awful lot of the, the tempo input into, um, you know, jazz from hell and all those great records. Sure. So, so yeah, so it was a great day. Um, and what else happened? Oh yeah. And the uh, nice, happy ending. Um, oh. so we went, we went down after, after we were done all that and see, see how the guys were doing. And we we're sort of moving on to just bits and pieces really. And some of Frank's percussion, you know, the big, uh, the big bass drum he had and yeah. stuff like that. And, um, and I think we were still photographing magnifiers, and suddenly I heard Ruth just shrieking, going, whoa, 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 down one end of the thing. I thought, oh, my God, what's what's Joe Travers doing? So we, <laughs> we went down there to see. And I don't know, have you have you seen the um, the Drummers of Zappa documentary? Oh, yeah, yep. yeah, the documentary. Uh, or the and and Ruth, Ruth tells a story in that. She told a story in that about how Frank had called her up because he couldn't find this piccolo snare drum that he used to use. And she was very upset because she couldn't find it and she didn't know what he wanted it for. And it was, again, in the last months of his life. And so she, she just mentioned that in the, in the broadcast. So we went along to the, the end by the shelves and there was Joe and Ruth holding this piccolo snare. Oh, and they were wow. both as pleased as punch. I've never seen such big smiles. So, so that was really quite cool. Where did they find it? It was just it was just tucked away underneath some cowbells and various other stuff. Wow! <laughs> and they couldn't find it back. I mean, was it sitting well, there well, the whole time? Frank didn't know where it was. That's the point. Yeah. Oh so, yes. So he thought maybe Ruth had borrowed it or something. I guess. But, yeah. Uh, That's so, amazing. So there we go. And so it was time to go. And um, thank Ruth very much. And her last words to me, she said, "Well, I don't let anybody into my house, you know." Don't let me down. And I went, and I went, Ruth, I wouldn't dare. Yeah, you had quite the experience there, and that was was that twenty eleven, twenty twelve. So that was January twenty twelve. Twenty twelve. And then she called me up and said, "We found a whole load of new stuff in in the Joe's Garage store. You need to come over again." So I went over again, <laughs> just on my own in March, um, and looked at things in Joe's Garage, mixing desks and all sorts of bits of junk and so on. And, and also went back to the UMRK and got to see Frank's um, collection of microphones that we never got around to. So that was, that was really cool. Now, so two sessions altogether, six sessions, two, two sessions. Oh, two sessions altogether. Okay. So you have to write about each of these pieces or do you have to make a judgment call on what you're going to write about for the book? Because, you know, the book can only be, I would guess, the book can only be so long. So do you have to make yeah. a judgment call? Yeah, I did. So 
I, I had an idea in my head by this time. I knew I wanted it to be about all of the equipment. And I decided that I really wanted to pitch it not just at guitar freaks, because it covered wider things. Certainly not just at guitar freaks who like Frank Zappa or mm-hmm. Zappa fans who, who, you know, who are interested in gear. But I thought this is an opportunity to document a lot of the technology that was coming into, into play around the time Frank was active because he tried everything that was new. Mm-hmm. And so of all the musicians I could pick, he was the one who just covered everything. You know, he, he was one of the first people who was interested in synthesizers. There was Moog, um, the, the Moog rep in LA did a, a little course of evening classes on how to work the big synthesizer. And Frank went along, and George Harrison, and I think um, oh, wow. one of Jeff's one of Jeff's an airplane, and and the rep told me he said Frank was the only one who paid attention, <laughs> and the others just went, oh my god, this is really complicated. I'll get one of my tech guys to do this stuff, but Frank was in there sort of learning how you plugged in all these things. You know the big the big old fashioned modes I'm talking about there. Yeah. You know, the, so, wall. <laughs> so you know he dived into early synthesizers. He had the first wah wah pedal. Um, you know, he was probably one of the very first people to put active electronics in a guitar and he just, he just dived into everything. So, so the idea was that I sort of try and write and basically about how Frank used the instrument, a little bit about how he came by it. And then a bit about the history of the instrument and the, the people who made it or who customized guitars or whatever. And a bit about the technology in a sort of trying to make it quite accessible. So that was my sort of idea. And it it became very obvious as well that I couldn't structure the book sort of chronologically because yeah. it just didn't work. Because it's like Frank is everything, you know, anytime for any reason, any place. So you'd get, you know, the um the switchmask guitar was there in sixty-seven. Mm-hmm. But then in the 80s, he had it customized with all sorts of strange stuff, and it comes back again, and so on. So, you know, he was he used old equipment, new equipment, whatever. Some of it was hard to know when he'd actually got it. So I just thought, okay, I'm just going to have to produce this as, if you like, a catalog of the different types of instrument. Sure. And so that's what I did, and and I got the idea, um, which I think I pinched from a Grateful Dead gear book, I think, but I thought it was a cool idea that. Yeah. Where I could identify it, I would try and find a track that actually featured the instrument. Nice. Which was really easy for the shut up and play your guitar ones, for example. Listed, yeah. <laughs> you know, it's um it was quite a challenge to listen to all this stuff and think, yeah, I think he's he's definitely using a big muff fuzzbox on this. So some of them are guesswork. Some of them we know for certain, you know, keyboards and synths and so on. But I thought I thought that would be something that we can put in. So I it's, it's interesting because I sort of came across that sort of thing about the photographs in the book. Oh, yeah? Yeah, because, you know, as well as all the pictures that I'd taken and, and, and you know, fans of people who'd been to concerts were, you know, very generous and gave me, you know, photos they'd taken. We licensed a few pictures from professionals. I had a couple of professional people who basically just said, yeah, you can have this for, <laughs> you know, Twenty dollars and a and a free copy of the book. That's how I got the uh, the two pictures of the Bath Festival, for example. Really? But but a lot of them, yeah. A lovely French lady took those. Oh, wow. We've now become good friends. So, yeah. 
But um, anyway, so I, and I do, I've sourced a lot of other pictures that nobody knew who owned the copyright. We just found them on the web. Um, all sorts of ones, you know, pictures of Frank with um, John and Yoko, for example, that you see everywhere. Yeah. And at the time, Gail has said to me, well, says, we'll just put it out and we'll put a disclaimer saying, you know, we've tried to contact the author and, you know, please let us know if, if you own this photograph sort of thing. Mm -hmm. But once it was sorted out and it was going to be with Backbeat Books and, and a professional company and an official Zappa family trust and so forth, mm -hmm. um, it soon became clear and Backbeat told me, they said, look, so unfortunately, we used to do that. We used to say, put a disclaimer. And in the old days, people would just sort of phone up and say, oh, that's cool. You know, what are you paying the other guys or, you know, mm -hmm. you can have $50 or whatever. But then there's now a whole load of lawyers who go around photographic exhibitions with a little card saying, you know, is somebody using your photograph? Contact us. Yeah. No fee, no thing. And they're suing people. And Backbeat got sued, apparently, for some picture. So we tried and tried. And there's quite a few pictures that I just had to drop, in fact, of concert pictures and so on. I say quite a few, maybe about six or seven. But I it was think a I shame. know one, I think. Wasn't there um, photos from the Armadillo World Headquarters in um, Austin in 75 of Frank playing, I think it was a Hagstrom? Now, was that was interesting. Yes. And, and actually, I did contact the copyright holder for that. Yeah. Um, and he wanted hundreds and hundreds of dollars. Really? <laughs> Yes, <laughs> for a really fuzzy, out-of-focus, rubbish picture. But he just said, no, no, he says, it's my copyright, and it's the only picture of Frank playing his guitar, and so you're going to have to pay me. I think he's – I can't remember exactly, but it was a lot of money. And I said, sorry, we can't. No, it's yeah. too much, you know. Did he try <laughs> so, to, like, bargain the, the he, price he was adamant after he knew he wasn't going to get any money otherwise? <laughs> yeah, he, was, he was just didn't care. He was adamant. And some photographers are like that. Um, you know, Dweezil said, you know, some guys are fine. And others, when he was trying to get copies of the guitar done and he was being charged, or the guy wanted to charge him for photographs you know, of his dad. <laughs> it oh sort of seems weird. <laughs> so anyway, yeah. So we may be able to still use some of that material on the web at some point. Because there you can sort of take a chance and say, you know, if somebody says, you can't use that, we'll go, okay, and we'll just remove it. But, yeah, because you're not profiting technically. Yeah, you're not profiting. No, exactly. Either. We're yeah. not profiting, so they. It's not like they can say we want your revenue and you can just remove it instantly. So mm -hmm. maybe, but that's got to be worked out anyway. We we did okay in the end. I think I managed to find you know we everything in there is licensed or given with permission or whatever. There's not too many gaps. I don't think. I think it's, I think it's a pretty good coverage. It's a really beautiful book. It's really well laid out. Who did the layout on it? Did they? Backbeat did that for us. Yeah, it was fantastic you know, I mean, layout. Thank, thanks to Armit, basically. I, you know, I, I, had, I had designed my own layout, sort of, with with the help of friends. But once the professionals did it, you just think, oh, yeah, okay. And so, having a a big publisher just take it away was great. The only downside was I had to reformat everything. Oh, yeah. I, had to take, I had to take my text and take out all the pictures and put in tags saying fig one so-and-so caption, all the, the stuff yeah. that they needed. So Because I just had a big Word document. So I had to spend a lot of work on that. That was okay, actually, because by the time we came to that, which was in 2017 or so, mm -hmm. 
Uh-huh. It all picked up again. Um, they'd had the auction where they sold a lot of the gear and sold the house and so on. And so quite a few, a few things had come out of the woodwork that I had heard about but had never seen. And they they had pictures of some of these things. And we, uh, we they they finally found um, Frank's vibraphone that we couldn't find, for example, and so on. So oh. fortunately, the Zappa family had copyright on those pictures. So I I was able to sort of add a couple of extra chapters and rewrite stuff. New information had come in over the past few years as well. So so it was useful. So it's it's reasonably up to date, even though I'd really finished it in about 2014. It was like revised in 2018, I suppose. Yeah. It was when we got the final copy off to the book. Yeah, there was a, a period of time where um, I was getting a lot of requests. Well, not requests, but, well, requests to request from you what the status of the book was. <laughs> so I'd ask you, you know, what was going on with the book. And... I, I had a, I've got a good friend who every Christmas I get a Facebook message from him. Where's the effing book, Mick? <laughs> 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 and yeah, I didn't know it was going to take this long. Yeah, no idea. But of course, what what happened? So I, you know, I I got the final draft to Gail, and and she was in reasonably steady contact then. But she was doing lots of other stuff as well. Mm-hmm. So it's still a bit intermittent. But she was slowly but surely going through the manuscript. She was running it past Joe Travers. They were checking it. I was getting corrections back. Or you can't use this woman's name. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> in the book, those sort of things. Yes, um, yes, I know who you're yeah, talking about. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. And um, so this was all going going fine. Um, I think the last time I saw Gail was, at, I think October 2013. I think it was when they came over and did the um, 200 Motels concerts. Yes, that's right. So I just saw her for about oh, 10, 15 minutes after the concert. She was lovely and charming again, and introducing me to people and. Yeah, this we got this great book. It should be out all oh, in a year or so. Everything's going to be cool. And of course, I didn't know that Gail was was seriously ill as well. Um, yeah, was she ill at that at point? Yes, she, yes, she was. was. Okay, she was. So I think, and that's partly why it meant such a huge deal to get the Tony Motels in LA and London that production because it was, you know, one of the bits of unfinished business that she wanted to sort of get sorted. So. I didn't know this, but certainly after, I think, the final, I was just checking the emails, and I got emails from her in 2014 saying, I'm just going to running this last section through with Joe, and then I didn't hear from her for ages, and then I think maybe a year later or something, I can't remember exactly when she passed, but we heard that she passed on. Yes. And at that point, I thought, oh, that's that's probably the end of it then, isn't it? And I wasn't sure whether to just self-publish it or put it out on the internet or whatever but finally in 2017 melanie from the um the zap office just sent me i said hello <laughs> we're yeah. still here um you finally found your way to the top of arm it's in tray and he's really excited we need a call and it all started again yeah so
what did Amit, you know, did he sort of take the reins on um, propelling the uh, project forward? Moving the project forward. That's a Yes, he did. Um, <laughs> so the first thing he did, you know, we had a couple of calls. I mean, Amit, he's just, he's tremendous. He's, he's a real force of nature, such an enthusiastic guy. And if he's... If you think something's going to be happen, it will, you know. So he just sure. said, oh, that's, that's fabulous. Ah, love this book. Um, yeah, I think we can get a proper book company. I'm not going to tell you yet. Um, oh, I wonder if it's Backbeat. And um, sure enough, it was. He came back and he'd, he'd done a deal with Backbeat. Um, wow. Including advance royalties. Um, oh, really? Yeah. <laughs> so you got you got split, belated split between, funding. <laughs> split, split between myself and the zapper you know he sure he negotiated a very good deal but i thought man i've got armit zapper as my agent i can't <laughs> imagine anyone better and so he set this up um and he had a lot to do with the design of the cover mm-hmm. uh, the first thing he did he sort of said ah because I'd, I'd carried it around it just been called zapper's gear as a working title for like nine years yeah and so you start you think well that's what it's called you know and he just said Nah, Zappa gear, much punchier. And the first thing I thought, ah, that's wrong, isn't it? But actually, <laughs> it it's not. grammatically wrong, yeah. <laughs> it isn't. It isn't. And, uh, you know, one of the inspirations where I took the working title from, because there's that great book called Beatles Gear. Sure. Yeah. And, and one called Rolling Stones Gear as well. Yeah. And there's but that's grateful, because but they were called. there is a Grateful Dead Gear, although. There's a Grateful Dead Gear. It's not called Grateful Dead's Gear. And Beatles Gear, they were called the Beatles. Yes. Rolling Stones Gear. And both those books, as as I said, as Frank would have said, the crux of the biscuit is the apostrophe, and yes. neither of those <laughs> had an apostrophe in the title. <laughs> as it is so, always. <laughs> and so, Amit said Zappa gear, and and then we went. You know, the, the publishing company went with some roughs of the design or whatever, and um, and Amit sort of approved it, and of course he gave us the awesome apostrophe picture for the cover yeah and i just thought wow if, if somebody said which photograph of frank would you like above all others i'd have said that one it's perfect and so you know and there he is peering out from between his an sg and a less poor <laughs> bits of snare and the, and the, yeah the, the piccolo the snare and, so on, <laughs> and all that so so he had a, a, a lot to do with that um but then basically then the publishing company just ran with it so that was sort of that was it apart from the fact that in the middle of things backbeat got bought from how learned by another company yeah but fortunately they bought my acquiring editor and they gave the technical people um a contemporary contract to finish the work and so on so there was a, a bit of a hiatus but it didn't it didn't cancel anything fortunately because they my the technical team at Backbeat had made sure that the book was well enough progressed that there was not going to be any debate about whether to continue it or not when the new company took it over. So fortunately, yeah. <laughs> so, so, so it go. was already there, you know, Yeah, it was done yeah. and it was on their plate and they weren't going to yeah. drop it because of the, you know, yeah. have you, so have you heard anything about, you know, the book is doing, I think it's doing, should be doing fairly well. I know a lot of people that have it. I'm I haven't seen any figures yet, and of course the the thing is, it's not out in the UK until uh, we think it's the fifteenth. Really? So, 
Yeah, 15th of February. They've never made it over for Christmas, so people had to import it if they wanted it. I guess, I guess they shipped it over in a container or something. I've no idea how these things work, but it's, it's, been, it's coming out in the middle of February in the UK. And so then I'm expecting that I'll hook up with um, the Backbeat department in London, if they still have one, because, of course, new publisher and so on. But I, I think they do. And so hopefully we'll be able to do some sort of book launching and so on. I've sort of dropped very heavy hints to the Zappa family. So I'll drop another one, you know, if... if if you were to fly me out to do some publicity and to present a copy to Lady Gaga in the UMRK, <laughs> I can make some time for you guys. <laughs> <laughs> I had a, yes. uh, a question. When you, when you were doing the research for the book and yeah. everything, was there a certain uh, piece of gear or equipment that, uh, you know, surprised you the most or maybe something that you had heard stories about that turned out to be different you know was there one particular piece that really stood out to you there, there was quite a few i was yeah i was very surprised um his big emu modular synthesizer that he had which he got before the synclavier he used to use it on stage some of the time great huge big old style modular synthesizer wires and everything and I think he, he used to like standing in front of it for photographs for interviews for a time because he, he often liked to have his latest bit of gear oh, yeah. <laughs> included in a picture, of course. <laughs> um, and anyway, and I found that that was in France. It was in Paris because huh. it turns out he'd given it to the um, Musée de la Musique in Paris. Really? Um, so I thought, oh, wow. So I... I went over to see it, of course, and take some photographs. Um, and it was uh, you know, a quick, quick day's journey on the Eurostar. Mm. Oh, it was easy in those days, but let's not go into that. Yeah. Anyway. <laughs> <laughs> not anymore. <laughs> um, and it was, it was, so there it was. It was, it was really nice to see it. Um, what was slightly strange is that they didn't have the keyboards for it. Huh. Huh. Uh, and so they just had these two units on the wall and no keyboards. The the nice thing, and I thought he would be really pleased, is that in this gallery where they had this stuff, they also had some of Edgar Varese's percussion instruments on oh. display oh. in this gallery. So I thought, yeah, that's that's good. Um, yeah. And eventually I, I, I tracked down the, um, the keyboards, and they'd been sold in the Joe's Garage sale to... Um, a private collector who gave me some photographs and so on. Mm -hmm. But apparently when they gave it, when they gave it to this museum, they just said, Oh, we don't know where the keyboards are. And so they said, oh, we'll have it anyway. Wow. <laughs> so that was interesting. They sold um, the keyboards in the Joe's garage sale. That's amazing. <laughs> yeah. No use on their own. Yeah. You, you need it without the unit. Yeah. With, you know, so sure. And, uh, you know, I, I, I sort of suggested, um, I think I did email the museum say, look, you know, there's a, I know, I know where they are now. The guy might sell them to you. And they just said, Oh, we've got no room. No, not interested. Which was a bit of a trick. <laughs> not, <laughs> not musicians, clearly. <laughs> yeah. uh, it's, a, it's, it's a great museum. If you're ever in Paris. Yeah. 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 I it would just to see that and to see Edgar Varese's percussion stuff is just, you know, yeah. I yeah. can't even imagine uh, Frank. I was, wonder if Frank knew that he must've, be when he um 
I yeah, he probably did. I suspect that was probably they probably mentioned that, and that's why he probably gave them the thing. I wouldn't be at all surprised. Yeah, I didn't see any correspondence. I just saw, you know, a little slip of paper in their register that said donated by um, Zappa Family Trust. That was it. Wow. So, before I get into asking about individual pieces of equipment, because I wanted to ask a few of the guitars and stuff. um, Okay. Which of Frank's sound mixers was hot? Okay. <laughs> <laughs> um, I just totally loved the Harrison mixer. Yeah. Which which was still there. It's been sold now, but it's still there in store at Joe's garage, uh, the Joe's garage, you know, rehearsal place. Yeah. Um, and again, because it was just like. A lot of Frank stuff. This was the ultimate modern electronic, barely digital. It was sort of mostly analog, but there was a sort of very primitive computer that could operate the mixers. And I think it, you know, it did this because there were little motors next to all the faders and everything that moved them up and down. Mm -hmm. So it was sort of very early electronic technology, Um, but just a gorgeous mixing desk. It was just and it was the sort of desk that when, you know, I've been young and, and done a bit of sound mixing and say, and, you know, sold small mixers and stuff like that. And I just thought, oh, this is, a, this is a good desk. So I think that was, that was my favorite, I would say. But I didn't concentrate as much as I might have liked on mixing desks because I thought for most people, that's getting just a bit too, too obscure, really. Yeah, too. <laughs> you know, so I had, to sort of, I had to rein myself in a bit about yeah. Um, and obviously he had he had a whole load of road desks and rehearsal oh, sure. desks and you know so and that stuff had just been sitting there Joe Travers and I have talked about this a few times on the show, but mm. what state is the Sinclavier in? It's kind of no longer functional, correct? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and I'm assuming it still isn't. So when I spoke to Todd, he said that they'd managed to rescue all the recordings from it because some of the recordings were just internally on the Sinclavier. They weren't sort of rendered into you know analog recordings and stuff so he said they'd got all that stuff out of it mm. and at the time they were trying to get some sort of technology students whatever to maybe do something with transcribing it but basically as far as i know frank's one is probably not working um yeah. although there are a few in the world that still are like like you know todd's one does yeah um but what has actually happened to to that i don't know i mean again it it should be it should be a working thing in a museum really there's not very many around because what what Todd said the final one that frank had um was a birthday present for him from gail 50th present maybe 50th birthday that's right. something like that she did get him a new one yeah he talks about it in an interview from that yeah and and so she just 
you know, just gone through the catalog and picked the biggest and the biggest and the biggest of all the options, basically. And the problem was that nobody had ever ordered anything with that much memory and that much this and that, whatever. And it never really worked very well. Yeah. And so a lot of the time, um, for some of the late recordings, Todd said I had to bring my one in because it still worked. (laughs) 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 And of course, he even took it on tour as well. Yeah. I, which is like he did in 88 yes he did yeah which is like astonishingly brave really yeah well anything bad could have happened to it on the road you know, i mean at any time there's, there's a little note on one of the you know in fact i saw the Sinclair flight case you know and it still says you know delicate instruments don't drop stickers on it <laughs> as if as if that would any roadie would read that, you know. But, yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, but the keyboard, the keyboard um, we saw was in, it appeared to be in lovely mechanical condition. Right? It's a beautiful mechanical bit of kit. And all the actual synthesizer stuff at the time was just tucked away in a cupboard hmm. in the room that Joe Travis was there with a couple of tape decks doing his, re, you know, extracting analog tapes. And so sure. nobody, you couldn't even open the door to get it out at the time. So yeah. Um, the, my understanding, cause I know people are going to, um, uh, write in or type in and ask mm-hmm. what the, the deal with the compositions that Frank was working on at the time, uh, of his passing or any unreleased, um, Sinclair compositions, uh, what the deal with that is. And my understanding is that it would essentially come down to being um, you might have indications of pitches, but you don't know what the orchestration for those pitches would be. So you might have a bunch of notes, but no idea what they were intended for, you know, what sample was to be used there or whatever. So, yeah, it's very hard. I, I think, I mean, some of them you'd fully render it, in the Sinclair and you could say, you know, with these patches and these instruments and so on, some of the stuff he was still doing in a semi-analog way, and they are outputting from the Sinclair into a, a bunch of ro- of fairly modern Roland Juno synths and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. So again, you've got no idea what that was set as. But Tony Vega mentions it, I think, in the sleeve notes to, um, I think it's uh, the monkeys at my maze on that one, yep. where he says that, the, the Sinclair work for Frank was just like an ongoing, continuous project. And, he, 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 you know, he had very little time left and he was just doing oh, loads of things at once and so on. And he'd come in and say, oh, I'm going to work on this one now. And he, he'd spend some time working on it. And maybe at three o'clock in the morning, they'd do a test run and that would actually go to tape. And then he might do some more work and then he might forget it for a week or month or whatever and so on. So that recorded tape of one particular tune just is you know an aid memoir for frank on where he was at that point in time Mm. and until he'd actually committed to putting it on an album none of that stuff was ever finished because he could change it so easily as well of course so Uh, let me ask you guys as as fans you know with Mm -hmm. stuff that's left over like that that you know is really unfinished would you rather just you know, it is what it is, or would you like to hear somebody kind of second guess and interpret what they think Frank would do? Because I think that's kind of a gray area, you know, because if it's not truly his vision, then, you know, 100 percent, then 
don't yeah, know. Yeah, I, I, I don't think I don't think that will be a good idea. I don't think it'll be representative. I think it's it's quite valid hearing what was going on in the studio, like the right, you know, like the lovely Hot Rats album yes, set, for yes, example. Hot Rats sessions. You know, those sort of things. You can hear how something is developing. Is very different from just looking at some sort of digits and stuff and some test prints. You know, I, I I think I get the impression they've probably gone about as far as they can with feeding the monkeys. And I'm not sure if there's going to be much else in the Synclavia. What I think it, it'd be much nicer to see is some more of his orchestral writing yes. actually performed. That's that's what I would like to see. Um, yeah, because, that I think you could legitimately do. Absolutely. You, know, you could always absolutely. do orchestral performances. Yeah. And you got to see 200 motels, didn't you, in London? I did. Yeah. Yeah. I did not get to see that because I would have had to go to London or L.A. to L.A., see. yeah. Yeah. That's it. <laughs> um, it was, it I was, was hoping for New York, but I it didn't did. happen. No, no. <laughs> well, maybe – well, I don't know. You know, I mean, we've, we've had sort of – a variety of performances of Zappa work happening in Europe. Mm. You know, every now and again, you'll see there was um, a couple of years back, there was a festival of modern American composers in Berlin. And that's right. There, there was Frank, you know, in the same bag as Gershwin and a couple of other people at, at the big symphony hall in, uh, in Germany. I, you know, so it's, it's, I mean, I just think, yeah, this this gearbook is interesting, but oh, Frank was alive it's now. Very interesting. <laughs> it yeah. would be, it would be nothing that he would be interested in at all because he really just wanted to write music, and partly that's, you know, you got the Synclavier because it could actually initially, because it would print out music for him. Yeah. Instead, you know, him having to sort of scribble it out on paper and get copyists and all this other stuff. So. So you don't think he would have been. Um particularly empathetic with the desire of certain fans to know um, the fine details of how he recorded a track or how he, um, you know, what instruments were played and all that kind of stuff. You think it was just about composition? I, 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 that's what he'd care about now. I mean, he, oh, he sure. was always, anything he did, he completely cared about all aspects of it, including the sound or whatever that's why he spent a fortune on effects pedals and effects racks and synthesizers mm -hmm. and everything all leading up to the synclavier which was like finally i've got something that i can completely control and you can see it in his guitars how you know the early ones he just hacked them around trying yes. to get a guitar that would do what he wanted and finally the performance strat was did everything he wanted he had enough electronics in there enough pickups and so on he could make it sound like an sg a, a telecaster a stratocaster whatever he wanted and it had a neck that was just halfway between it was sort of like a gibson fender profile it was it was the perfect guitar for him and he so he'd finally got a guitar that he could completely control um and he would have thrown away all his racks and got digital gear by now for sure because why would you carry around all this incredibly complicated stuff that keeps breaking? <laughs> yeah, that's true. It's bands don't even uh, Wads knows this. Bands don't even use amplifiers on stage anymore. <laughs> Isn't that <Yeah>. sad? <laughs> Kiss doesn't even use vocals; they just press play on a tape. Yes, know? they uh, do. <laughs> technology. Yeah. 
I was. No, gonna... I mean, Dweezil, Dweezil oh, okay. started out with a sort of replica rack of Frank's on the first tour. Yes, that's right. And pretty soon he was using guitar emulators and working with the guys to get stuff programmed because it's just, you know, it's, it's, you've got to be crazy to do that stuff, really. But, yeah, I um, wonder if he's uh, stopped using um, amplifiers in the back line these days. You know, apparently it's just uh, more cost effective to run everything through the PA. If you're, you know, if you're running your gear through your... Um, you know, if you can hear it in your in-ear monitors anyway. Funnily enough, there's still um, still a ready business for backline gear at the moment. I, I hope so, because Chris, my son, who I mentioned, that's that's one of his major gigs. Yeah. He works for a big backline art company in America, in, in London. So, yeah. you know. <laughs> well, Pete Townsend but, still uses his amps. They're yeah. still, you know, for feedback and things like this, sort of necessary for that. You can't just make that happen otherwise. <laughs> no, no. I, it, well it, control it, of feedback was a big part of frank's sound you know he knew yeah um he knew exactly how to control precisely his uh the amount of feedback that he got and all yeah. that stuff i think the only difference was probably the uh switch master right because that tended to feedback because it was um you know hollow body yeah, that's right so on, on the subject of feedback Here's a request for you. Sure. If you if you're limited to short clips, mm-hmm. um, can you put in the opening long feedback note on sexual harassment in the workplace played yes. on Fender Strat? Because I think that is one of the most perfect examples of controlled feedback that anyone has ever recorded. I just love that track. Yeah, because you know the note I'm talking about. Yeah, that. Yeah, yeah, I sure do. Yeah. So you don't really get that if you don't have, you know, the amps on stage and all that stuff, you know. But, um, yeah, I can absolutely put that in, of course. Yeah, I what mean, was... Frank, mm. <laughs> the yeah. last tour, mm. um, he had so many amps, not just on the stage, but he had them underneath the drum risers as well. He had an incredible <laughs> number of amps, apparently. <laughs> Arthur Barrow said it was like a sort of 747 jet taking off when he started one of his solos. Was, you know, Tommy Mars and people would be sort of shaken off the riser. You know, it was like, yeah. Have you, <laughs> ever, yeah, in fact, have you ever seen sorry, the video of the sound check in Philly in 88 when he's going through the different um, amp configurations and stuff? He's like, okay, you want the Marshall now? And then there's just huge noise you know <laughs> and he's, he's I, I haven't seen that one that's oh no a, it's great i'll send you the clip it's on youtube yeah oh no i'll find it i've got things wrong i mean this this is an interesting thing of course because a book like this is it will never be finished of course um, and, and and now that it's out i'm going to get hopefully uh, it will trigger more people with interest in this sort of stuff but i'm bound to get people saying look actually here's a photograph i took at this gig because i was there and actually you know he, he he didn't have a pig nose on stage or whatever it's yeah. we, you know we'll we'll just have to see but obviously stuff will have to be revised and new information will come out which will be good 
I mean, that's, I've already been speaking to a guy who's doing some work on the pig nose, who was able to tell me that the Frank's pig nose had a Germanian transistor circuit. It's one of the original ones. Really? And he thinks that Frank probably had it wired to run on 18 volts, not 9 volts, but he's not sure. So that's sort of 18 volts. <laughs> Just stick an extra battery in, yeah. Yes, See what happens. That's amazing. <laughs> <laughs> oh, one I squads that, you know, yeah. a very important question. Yeah. Um, you can only keep one, and the other one you have to throw in the volcano. Uh, Frank... Okay. As a guitar player, I'm talking purely as a guitar player. Frank Zappa or okay. Vinny Vincent? <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, Vinny. No, no contest there. Yeah, yeah. No contest there. One's a magician and one's a magician because I don't know what the fuck Vinny Vincent turned into. <laughs> but uh, but uh, no, Frank Frank all day, my all-time favorite guitar player. Yeah. yeah. Not even yeah. close. It's kind of hard, you know, like Frank invented a language on the guitar. And um, yeah. it is a very difficult language to learn. I have literally no idea what he was doing most of the time, even though I occasionally, when I'm playing a guitar solo or something, it'll some of that will sneak in to it just because I've heard those licks so many times. But His solos were very different. I mean, they, I, I, I still think Frank listened to a lot more jazz than he said. Than he owned just, up to? Yeah, I'm. I'm just trying to. I'm sure I saw something in the hot rat sleeve notes. And he's the reason I, I started listening to jazz because I never would have gave it the time of day uh, sure. yeah. until I, I, I delved more into Frank's music. Yeah, I mean, you know, he obviously, you know, like say that '69, '68, '69 period. There's a whole lot of Archie Shep in what um, yeah. Frank was doing and what the mothers were doing in general. You know, I. I think that uh, there's a lot more of that than maybe he, like I said, owned up to. <laughs> yeah. No, absolutely. I, I'm sure it's, I can't find it, but in the sleeve notes in the Hot Rat Sessions, there's a quote from him that he heard a Archie Shep solo that sounded like a whole load of hot rats. Yeah. <laughs> That's great. I think Joe, yeah. Um, yeah, Joe heard that on one of the the Peter Okio Grosso tapes, the, the tapes that were made for... Um, yeah. Uh, the real Frank Zappa book, the interview tapes. And yeah, um, yeah it's just such a great like quote. You know, and I'm glad he found that because uh, I always yeah. wondered where that came from. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I'm, I, I thought I, I should say this now and, mm -hmm. and to warn people who buy the book. <laughs> and I hope I don't. <laughs> I don't put people off it. But over the years, I've had so many people emailing me say when's it coming out when's it coming out i really want to i want to make my own replica oh, God. sg or whatever and so on and and i think that's fine and it's a really nice cool thing to do and it's you know if you like the sound of a particular effects pedal or whatever i think that's sort of cool as well mm -hmm. but you need to understand and, and for reasons we've just been talking about that having an exact replica or even the exact guitar and amplifier and everything it's going to do you no more good than you've if you've got Leonardo da Vinci's paintbrushes and pigments. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. and that that's something you need to people need to realise. I mean, I hope I, I hope that's not what I put people off buying the book. Buy it, you know, make no, replicas sound it. like Frank. But <laughs> but you probably do better listening to a lot of Archie Shep if you want to sound like Frank, maybe, or listen to a lot of Frank. 
uh, the easiest way would be uh, plug your record player into your amplifier. That, that's yeah. about, you know, <laughs> the you closest want to way you're going to get his tone. Yeah. yeah. And, and in fact, it's, again, for these sort of reasons, you know, Frank Zappa was a huge influence on endless musicians mm-hmm. in terms of an attitude, the way he worked, all sorts of things. But there's very few people playing anything like Zappa. It's not like saying, oh, we all this, you know, this band is a bit Zappa-esque or whatever. Hardly at all. You you can't get very that. Early. His influence is too complicated and, and too out there for most people. Do you, do you understand what I'm saying? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. It, you know, whereas, you know, you can get, like, I don't know, the Beatles was be a big influence and there'll be lots of bands sounding like the Beatles because that's what they did not knocking them but yeah no, you can't you do that sound thing. like the Beatles you know theoretically yeah yeah you, you could get the sound you might not have the the song right craftsmanship but you know yeah. Frank's music is so precise I mean you got to have you know top notch that's why I, I'm always surprised every time I see Dweezil you know and there's different members in the band it's like man he just keeps finding you know, you need really great musicians to, you know, replicate this stuff. Yeah. And you, and you don't see anybody else writing new versions of it either, <laughs> you know. No. He but was I'm, a genius. Yeah. Weasel's band were really good, though. And George Duke said this to me. He said, those guys are probably better technically than we were in the day. Huh. Well, you know, because yeah. they had a great drummer his, back in the day. <laughs> well, yeah. <laughs> <I joke. laughs> yeah. But... But, you know, I think that's perhaps true, you know, like like the way, you know, we've gone past the four minute mile and people run faster than they used to. And I think modern guitarists, they can be, you know, technically because of all the innovations and the stuff that Van Halen did, whatever. Mm-hmm. I hear young kids playing guitar and they're technically so proficient. It astonishes me. Mm-hmm. And even Frank, he would admit it himself. He was quite sloppy in his fingering. Oh, sure. He, you know? Yeah, because he's a blues matter. guitar player in at yeah. the root, you yeah. know, and that colors everything. It's like Steve Vai said that, you know, it was blues, but there was a lot of, I think he said cayenne pepper in there. <laughs> in, <laughs> <Yeah>. the <restaurants. laughs> in fact, yeah, I mean, Johnny Guitar Watson, every now and again, you might hear a sudden little lick from Johnny and go, ah, that's yes. where Frank got it from. Yep. Every now and again, don't you? Yeah, I, and, you know. And the that, tone and so on three hours past midnight you know some of those licks that are in there you hear that you know if yeah. you know if you know what you're you know what to listen for you'll hear that every now and then um you know stuff like that and it's just you know it's it always makes me laugh when i hear that stuff because it just goes yeah. right back to the beginning you know that's where it comes from uh, well that's uh, that yeah and that's what frank said about you know the the, the first the famous first guitar that him and bobby zappa ruined yes. Sandpapering, and that guitar still existed. Oh, I'm sorry, Mick. I don't mean to cut you off. That guitar still existed as of '66, right? It, yeah, uh, in the book, and Frank had it in his apartment. Yeah, I'm sorry, I didn't mean to cut you off before. (laughs) No, no, that's right. But and so you know, there was just a couple of kids, but I just remember Frank saying, Oh, I didn't know anything about guitar, but I suddenly found out if I played really really hard right near the bridge i could make this guitar sound a bit like johnny guitar <laughs> 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 his big old semi-acoustic f-hole guitar but you, you can get see oh that's how he gets that sound <laughs> pick it really hard right near the bridge that's what you gotta do <laughs> well the more like 
you know, because I write these books about the show, the shows that he played and all that stuff. And the more that I hear these solos, the more that I realize that he had a mastery of the guitar, not just from a lead guitarist perspective, but also from a rhythm guitarist perspective that few guitarists could ever uh, match. And he had the imagination to take that somewhere. I mean, yes, there were, um, you know, Steve I is, it would be hard to argue that he's not technically a better guitarist than Frank, Frank, but you'll never be Frank. That's the thing. And I'm not saying they're trying to be, I'm just saying that, you know, they can't be Frank because Frank brought that composer mentality to everything, including an extemporized guitar solo. And it was just, you know, it's crucial to have that kind of that kind of thought process. Goes back to the yep. air sculpture thing that Gail was talking about, right? Yeah, and, and that's why he, he hacked all his his kit about so much. Yeah, because he just had an idea in his head, and he wanted it something to make this sound. So he would, you know, take take the lovely Switchmaster. <laughs> Yeah, and, and get John Carruthers to cut a big hole in the back. Oh my god! You read that one bit. Yeah, yeah, I did. You know, so this this one one of the rarer versions of the Switchmaster, beautiful guitar, and he wanted active electronics to put in it. And I spoke to John Carruthers, who'd done the work, and he, he was saying, "I can I can get it through the holes. You know, it's just like putting a ship in a bottle. We yeah. can do this stuff." And Frank said, "No, no, cut a big hole in it, put oh a metal plate god. on it. It's going to be easier to service it." And he said they almost fell out over it, but he did the work in the end. But <laughs> and and he just wanted, he had an idea of a sound, and that's all he wanted. And he would do whatever it needed, and that might be use a little tiny pig nose, or that might be use, you know, two marshals and a mess of boogie mm-hmm. and a and a rubbish old Beatles Vox amp mixed together. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> you know. Because he had the idea that that could get him the sound he wanted. Astonishing. Can you imagine the kind of, you know, what what I really need here <laughs> is... <laughs> I a need Telefunken company. U47. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's, just, it's just amazing. If you took the Switchmaster and put it, you know, plugged it into an amp, would it make a noise at this point? Because um, um, there's, there's an interview with uh, Dweezil that's on YouTube. And yeah, I, I honestly don't know. What, at the time um, when we photographed it and when we spoke to Dweezil at that time, he, he said, it's it's not working, we can't figure it out. I think they could get a signal out of it, but all the active electronics, they couldn't figure out how to make them work. And the Barkersberry pickup, nobody could get that working. And there's sort of, there's about two or three extra sockets on it. There's XLR sockets yeah, and things. Yeah, so, there's an XLR on it. Yeah, so I... So I don't, I don't know where that guitar is, but that wasn't in the auction. So hopefully it's somewhere safe and someone yeah, else. Yeah, I of, don't know either. Uh, actually, I, have to, I don't know where that landed. But, but I mean, those the pickups he put on it were, I think they were just prototypes from Barkus Berry. They probably gave them to him because he bought a whole load of his, of their contact pickups for the vibraphones, I guess. Because why? Nobody uses those. Yeah. Ever. And they barely ever made it into manufacturing. Even Barkus Berry themselves can't remember anything about them. You know, so. Why he put those on, and, and what happened to the original Gibson pickups? Well, I don't know. That's mm-hmm. Some some lucky tech somewhere <laughs> yeah. got the problem. If you want to know what happened, read the follow-up book. Yeah, yeah. exactly. <laughs> That's the next thing. 
And that's our show. The ZappaCast was produced and edited by Scott Parker. Production assistance by Joe Travers and Melanie Starks. This podcast and all of the musical selections contained therein are copyrighted worldwide by the Zappa Family Trust. All rights reserved. Big thanks to Ahmed Zappa and all at Zappa.com. On behalf of the ZappaCast team, this is Scott Parker saying thank you for listening. And until next time, good night, boys and girls. It's been lovely working for you this evening. Good night. Good night.